1: from the week that was. Many of us have been transfixed by the tragedy in the Miami area with the collapse of that beachfront condo in Surfside. A lot of Canadian Zoomers spend all or part of their winters in Florida with many renting condos there. And that's where Libby began the week with the Zoomer squad. Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP.
2: If you look at the uh,
3: stated possible reasons having to do with salt water, salt in the air, eroding the foundations, an engineer's report from 2018 saying that there was an unacceptable level of damage or, or risk of damage in the underground parking lot, this is going to now trigger, of course, an examination of every building on that barrier island, which Miami Beach, Miami essentially is. And I think every condo board uh, in that part of the world is going to be, uh, if they haven't already, be talking to their lawyers and their engineers, and and uh, suddenly it gives you something new to worry about. But uh, if you don't worry about it, maybe maybe you should.
4: Peter, I mean, I'm assuming I've been transfixed by this. I remember staying in a parent's friend's apartment on Collins Avenue. Of course, it was probably around the time it was all built. But um, I'm sure this triggers something. And people also have property in Miami. And now they're thinking, what is that assessment going to be like?
5: Yeah. And um, the the ironic thing is it appears that this building was being assessed uh, as it collapsed, and and there were site engineers on location um, looking at it, and then it collapsed under them. So uh, it was an older condo, and, um, well, I I, I suppose if you say 80s is older, but but a lot of condos went up in the boom in the 90s and the early 2000s that were really just slapped together. You know, they they used, um, I remember there were stories of the, the chinese drywall that was toxic and uh, the windows that leaked and the you know so the, these things went up to um you know fulfill the demand of people who wanted to spend a winter in florida but uh, how many are like these you know like how how many just went up quickly weren't structurally sound and uh we'll have to see it in the review because i imagine every single condo now is going to have to undergo a strenuous review
4: apparently, Bill, it was ordered before that do you have to have an assessment at 40 years, which is where these buildings are at. There's a sister building and people there, I would imagine, are really worried.
3: I'm sure that uh, everyone who is uh, living in a building that was built uh, around the same time and, and used the same companies and tradespeople are uh, concerned about them. And it does. You know, it is a larger question. We've had uh, issues in Canada over the years uh, about the quality of condos as they've been putting put up so quickly. And one of the problems, of course, with condos is once they're built, they get sold to the residents, the the uh, resident uh, board that runs them, and this absolves the. Uh, Original builders of a lot of the issues, so it really depends on local um, uh, 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 laws and uh, and uh, reviews of what's happening and standards for uh, for condos. And how do how does the person know when you are living in, buying or renting a condo, especially in another country? Uh, are you making sure that you are aware of what the uh, what the rules and regulations are around them. And I think this is going to cause a lot of people, not just people who uh, holiday in Florida, but uh, who go anywhere out of their own home, wanting to know more about how sure that they can be that their building is being built safely and, and being kept in a safe condition as it gets older.
1: Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP. The Zoomer Squad heard every Monday on Fight Back. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Back in this country, Canadians are also grappling with the devastating discovery of unmarked graves of about a 1,000 Indigenous children on sites of former residential schools. Libby discussed with Saul Mamakwa, Ontario NDP, Indigenous and Treaty Relations Critic.
6: Sometimes uh, the laws, uh, settler laws, uh, um, sometimes uh, when individual rights versus the collective rights, collective, you know, sometimes override it and sometimes I, I do not agree with that just because it's just so much, uh, uh, you know, these documents, uh, archives, uh, could tell a story on where these children are or how they died.
4: What are your priorities in the coming weeks uh, in dealing with this?
6: You know, uh, I think one of the things is, uh, you know, I know uh, a lot of people have come to me about, uh, you know, what do we do for Canada Day? And I think uh, Canada Day is not going to be the same. And I I know, um, you know, I I wish I could wish everyone a happy Canada Day, but I cannot. But I think uh, we need to... uh, you know, start looking at uh, you know, uh, start moving forward in a good way, where we accept the truth. Um, you know, where there is accountability, and I think it's so important that we start getting the uh, the records at all levels, whether it's death records, hospital records, you know, uh, whatever records that may, may be there. And uh, not only that, like you know, universities have uh, permitted professors to participate in medical experiments that happened and in residential schools. And we need to be able to figure those out, get those copies as well, because, again, we need to determine when they died, how they died uh, from those records.
4: I'm now joined by Kat Krieger, who is an Indigenous elder, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper of the Cayuga Nation Turtle Clan, and Dr. Scott Hamilton, a professor of anthropology at Lakehead University. Kat Krieger, what are your thoughts, and what have you been hearing from people in your community?
6: I'm hearing what many people are hearing. Um, That is the truth is starting to come out. And in this place and space that we live, uh, to have things, bad things hidden away, uh, let me rephrase that, to have the, the knowledge of um, some of our history hidden away is, is perplexing. One has to ask why that would be done, and, and the obvious answer comes up, this this is a, a terrible and dark thing. The truth needs to be spoken, um, and sometimes to get truth out of people is, is difficult, whether it's hidden records, or people protecting themselves, or... Institutions protecting themselves, um, but these these are the all questions.
4: of the above. Yeah, and D- many more. And many more. Dr. Hamilton, you wrote a report entitled "Where Are the Children Buried" for the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission more than five years ago. What did you find in the report in terms of you, how many or where, and and how did you arrive at that conclusion? You know, so
7: long ago. What was in my report isn't new information by any means. It was very clear from as early as you know,
8: 1906,
7: 1907, when Peter Bryce um, wrote his report that these were terrible, dangerous places where children were dying in large numbers, and nothing was done. And it was almost, well, pretty much 90 years before the last of these schools were closed and throughout the hearings of the TRC, um, testimony of survivors spoke repeatedly of illness and death um, within these schools. I was tasked very specifically with the problem of trying to identify where burial places might be at the various schools. Um, and that proved to be a much more difficult task than one might first think.
1: Dr. Scott Hamilton, a professor of anthropology at Lakehead University, Saul Mamakwa, Ontario NDP Indigenous and Treaty Relations Critic, and Kat Krieger, Indigenous elder, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper of the Cayuga Nation Turtle Clan. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsky. Coming up after the break... The controversy over the possible renaming of Dundas
0: Street. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Komsic on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. Tuesday, the strategy panel tackled women in politics after Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna announced she won't seek re-election. She unfortunately has been the poster child for the harassment, threats, and bullying that women of all political stripes suffer in this country and around the world. Joining Libby were John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Souza, former Ontario Finance Minister, and filling in for Karen Stintz. Jane Tabor, Director of Communications to the Premier of Nova Scotia, who covered politics for many years for the Globe and Mail and the Ottawa Citizen, with a special interest in women in politics.
9: First of all, congratulations to her. She did a, a great job, I think, on the federal stage and, and really representing or trying to tackle climate change for us, and, and kudos to her. And what I liked what she said, you know, it really resonated with, with me, Libby, about the fact that, like, it wasn't okay that, that about what happened and that she waited too long. You and I started covering the Hill in the mid 80s uh, <laughs> the late back- 80s <laughs> well 86 okay. i started I, yeah. you weren't far after me then um and you know i was. there was no social media then but even then there were a few women and the women that we saw there were always called out uh for their their high-pitched voices for what they wore how they looked there was a double standard and that double standard still exists and one of the things that i always regretted when i was uh, covering the-, the hill is that i didn't spend more time Supporting those women in, in calling out some of, some of those issues. And even as a, as a female journalist, and I don't know if, you, if I'm sure it probably happened to you, that we were, we were under a little bit of a, of a spotlight ourselves because we looked a little bit different covering Parliament Hill. And so I had trolls even back before social media. Uh, and I wish that I had been a little bit stronger in putting my foot down and saying, hey, this is, this is just not okay. We're, we're just as good as everybody else. And as you said at the very beginning, we're even better at leading.
4: Charles Sousa, I, I'm sure that she thought, hey, I am just, I'm not doing this anymore.
10: Um, I, I think Catherine did a fantastic job, and like too many in politics, not just women, there always are haters out there, and there are trolls, and there are, there are threats. But nothing seems to be as worse as it is for women. I'm thinking about C- Catherine. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. Kathleen Wynne. I'm thinking about others that I've seen that have been exposed to just a, a, a barrage of, of, of uh, excessive and cruelty through social media. And just like men, men and women, you know, we're not all successful. Uh, but those that are, regardless of gender, are, are there because of that that degree of consistency. But some of the women that I've come across in politics are extraordinary. Uh, and unfortunately, I, they have had to deal with more social media bashing than I ever had to.
4: And again, John, I mean, it it seems that in recent years and with social media, there's just been a huge escalation of this Mm -hmm. to the point of it becoming dangerous for women.
2: Jane mentioned something that was really important, which which was that today versus... Days uh, of of yesteryear, or you know, many years ago, or decades ago, when, when social media wasn't around, you know, now under the guise of, of anonymous, you know, people who are are tweeting and trolls and stuff that that you can sort of say things much more vicious uh, and not get not be accountable for it, it becomes even more uh, crazy. And and I do, and I also want to add my congratulations to Catherine and. And the work that that um, uh, that she has done, uh, you know, as minister, and and you know, I know she's not from my party, but but I tell you that you know I, I applaud any woman who gets into politics who uh, are strong and have to withstand all this, and I give her a lot of credit for being able to call it out as she did, because it'll be people like that that will absolutely in- encourage other women who are seeing that They may be discouraged from politics, but they're saying, well, look, there's other women who have who have gone through this, survived it, fought back. Uh, and maybe I will be w- the the way that you know, I'll be like that and then get into politics because I know that every party and 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 I say that about my party both federally and provincially, every party uh tries to do their best to encourage more women to become because you know um it, it just makes for better cabinets, makes for better caucus, makes for better discussions, and it's something that I think that it, it's it's unheard of that that we're seeing the kind of this role reaction we're seeing to some, uh, the politicians, but the women in general of, of all political stripes.
1: John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Souza, former Ontario Finance Minister, and filling in for Karen Stintz, Jane Tabor, Director of Communications to the Premier of Nova Scotia, who covered politics for many years for The Globe and Mail, as well as Ottawa Citizen. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Toronto Mayor John Tory supports a recommendation by city staff to rename Dundas Street and other landmarks with the aim of promoting inclusion and reconciliation with marginalized groups in the community. Libby's guests weighed in from all sides. Andrew Lougheed, who was behind a petition seeking a name change, Toronto Sun columnist Anthony Fury, who opposes the idea, and Cheryl Blackman, Interim General Manager, Economic Development and Culture for the City of Toronto.
8: When the city staff team got together to look at the preparation for this report, we considered the background and the history of Henry Dundas, who scholars have concluded played an instrumental role in delaying the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, causing more than a half a million more Black people to be enslaved in the British Empire. We also looked at the assets, uh, city assets, named after Henry Dundas. Um, And there are some 730 street signs that need to be considered, Um, the, the arteries that loop into uh, Dundas Street along the highway, subways, uh, young Dundas Square. We looked at commemoration. We looked at uh, you know, the impacts on business and residents, and the ways that we could mitigate that. So we did really provide a fulsome review of uh, more than 400 case studies of, of history to, to really understand who Henry Dundas is and to be thoughtful in our approach to contemplating this question about you know how we manage this issue Um, and and move ourselves forward. Is it worth it? I I think that's an understandable question, but certainly from the point of view of city staff, we really do understand that we've made a commitment to healing and taking action to address anti-Black racism, racism against Indigenous peoples, to combat anti-Semitism, to really just be present in seeking equity um, with our colleagues and, and fellow Torontonians. So we make commitments through our 2017 Toronto Action Plan to Confront Anti-Black Racism, the 2010 Statement of Commitment to Aboriginal Communities. So from the point of view of living up to our city, model diversity, our strength, we truly believe that, you know, this is a step that is inclusive and progressive and is something that we we value moving forward with.
4: Andrew, what made you start this campaign?
5: Inspiration behind Rename Dundas really comes from uh, last summer's Black Lives Matter, uh, protests and movement, um, that, uh, that really found a re-energization following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. When I was following the protests last summer, I happened to learn, uh, whilst reading about the Edward Colston statue being thrown into the harbor in Bristol in the United Kingdom, uh, in one line of the article, it mentioned, Uh, a controversy around the Melville Monument uh, dedicated to Henry Dundas in Edinburgh, Scotland. Now, from my previous work, I was aware that that Henry Dundas was the same Henry Dundas for whom Dundas Street here in Toronto was named. And I thought, if Edinburgh is having that conversation, we really ought to be, too
4: anthony fury did he deserve to get all this real estate named after him in the first in the first place i mean re- regardless of the bad things
11: he was involved with yeah that's a very good question and we find that with a lot of our streets and facilities that have been named uh particularly much longer ago i think more recently we have a connection a more direct connection to the people who our places are named after but a lot of times it's uh It's someone with connections back to England who goes, okay, I'm going to name this after this guy who died in 1811 and who uh, a lot of people probably didn't even know that much about here in Canada when it happened. And certainly most people don't know much about this guy right now. Uh, This is a thing that, uh, you know, you really have to go in search of a problem such as this because nobody's talking about Henry Dundas and Uh, I appreciated the points you made before the break. I heard that segment, and you know, I'm the same. I'd I'd like to consider myself fairly well versed in Canadian history, but I gotta say, I didn't know much about this guy, uh, either. So, all of the people on Dundas Street, all of the hardworking small business owners who are gonna have to rewrite uh, all of their menus and, you know, all of their signage and so forth, and all of the tourists and, uh, and the foreign students and so forth who populate the Young and Dundas area. they really don't know much about this. So I really think this is much ado about nothing. And I think we should be putting our resources and our energy towards something that uh, can bring about actually meaningful, positive change.
1: Toronto Sun columnist Anthony Fury. Andrew Lougheed, who was behind a petition seeking to change the name of Dundas Street, and Cheryl Blackman, Interim General Manager, Economic Development and Culture for the City of Toronto. I'm Bob Komsik, and this is Zuma Radio's best of fight back. Still to come, what you had to say about the
0: week that was, and the fight back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive
1: coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Clay from Ajax weighed in on the discovery of remains on the sites of former residential schools.
5: This is another blade on our past, unfortunately. We're not a perfect country like everybody would like to think we are. Libby, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the probably one of the richest organizations in the world. As far as I'm concerned, they should be paying for the excavation and all the radiation treatments that they need to find these bodies and relocating them and that with their families. I mean, that's going to cost millions of dollars.
1: But it was the recommended renaming of Dundas Street that had the phones ringing, starting with Simone in Parkdale, who's opposed.
9: I'm really incensed at this. I live just a block above Dundas and, uh, it's going to cost way too much money. And if this is a control, this is all what comes from the leftist, uh, element in City Hall and John Tory listens to them every time they say jumpy ass how high. This is going to cost way more money. 60 different names. And that the gentleman earlier said about the maps being changed. It's, it's crazy. And first of all, the largest number of blacks in Canada in the 60s, early 60s was in Nova Scotia. You never had that many blacks, but they're all doing this because of the multicultural um, uh, aspect and people who have worse histories in their countries than ours.
1: Ron in Guelph on the possible renaming of Dundas Street.
3: Where does it stop? Um, let's go find some dirt on Sir George Yet, because I'm sure if we dig far enough, we'll find some dirt on him. How about Bathurst? Let's find some dirt on, uh, on Bathurst. If we dig far enough back in history, Libby, we can find some dirt on just about anybody. Look at uh, McDonald's. Uh, part of it is this whole thing. As We've had this conversation before. I'm in favor of educate, not eradicate. Um, as I said, it's you've got to look at the perspective. Did these people do more good than bad and weigh it against that?
1: Helen in Mississauga, also not in favor of renaming Dundas Street.
9: I'm really saddened. By all of this with people wanting to change names of streets and things. it's all part of the history. Now, I was an immigrant. I came from Scotland in 1957 and I was raised in Toronto. And you know, the thing was, it, Toronto was beautiful and it was so mixed, multicultural. And I was raised with everyone and we didn't care what you were. We didn't care anything. You know, people were happier. Everyone now is so angry.
1: Joan in Niagara has a solution.
8: I think with all this nonsense, we should just start giving all the streets numbers. (laughs) And in 50 years' time, they won't be able to complain about it.
1: On Canada Day, Sita and Mississauga reflected on the past injustices done to Indigenous people.
11: Yes, we should celebrate Canada Board Day. Canada is our country. We should be proud to be Canadian because presently we are the ones who is making a difference, recognizing and making an amendment for the past horrific acts towards the First Nation people and the children at residential school. Our hearts hate today, but we should be proud to be Canadian, uh, a country we call our home.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the fight back knockout call of the week comes from Wanda in Georgetown on Canada day.
9: I'm truly sorry for all of these indigenous burial children that have been found. I think that that is absolutely horrendous and not acceptable. Um, However, this is something that went on many, many years ago and I wasn't responsible for it and you weren't responsible for it. And I think it's part of our history that should be taught and children should know about it and be educated about it. But I think we also have to move forward and celebrate the wonderful country that we live in.
1: That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week phone us between noon and one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of
0: Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.